Good morning, everyone. Um, Probably a little bit uh, not very sensible. Um, uh, Probably today's talk should actually be about five talks. Uh, But I feel like I started something uh, and the retreat's ending, so... We'll see what we get to. Um, <clears throat> so we were we were going through these eight uh, sort of principles or approaches to slightly different takes, different approaches to working with our emotional life, and I think we completed seven. So I want to finish that and and move on in certain directions. Uh, the eighth one is flexibility. Flexibility of relationship uh, with the emotion that's going on. And flexibility of view, meaning the way I am seeing it in the moment. Flexibility. So for those of you that were here right at the beginning of the retreat, um, we talked about Vedana, the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that goes with any experience. Well, and I think I said during that talk, emotions have a Vedana. Uh, Actually, the Vedana moves in emotions. But when there's a complex emotion going on, uh, very, very helpful at times to just come, for instance, to the heart center or maybe the throat or some emotions around the mouth, somewhere along this central axis, and just very delicately and sensitively simplifying the attention uh, to the Vedana level and staying with the, the unfolding moment to moment of the Vedana at the kind of core of the emotion. And that's a very uh, simple way of paying attention and a very simplifying way of paying attention. That's not the only way. We've been through all these other possibilities, but that's one. And so there's a kind of flexibility. We can do that. And remember, that level is available to us, that simplifying possibility is available to us, no matter how crazy we feel we have become, no matter what shenanigans have uh, unfolded in terms of papancha, etc. That simple level is always the level of Vedana, no matter what, going on, and to pay attention to the level of Vedana in a way that's just allowing it, just allowing it to unfold moment to moment, that is always available and usually always simplifying. Uh, so it's not that we miss the moment of, of, of contact or we miss the initial thought that's triggered all this madness. It's not, that's not necessarily a problem at all. This level is available to us. Two hours down the road, two months down the road. <clears throat> So there's, that's an option. So to have these options means we're flexible in any moment. I can switch gears, I can switch directions, I can switch approaches. I could also play with different relationships with, uh, with an emotion. Almost, you could say, tempering the mindfulness, tempering the attention that goes with uh, or towards uh, an emotional experience. So what is it to 
temper the mindfulness with warmth or with compassion. Sometimes in other talks I've talked <coughs> plenty about this. I'm, I'm just going through quite quickly. There's the possibility of actually surrounding a difficult emotion in warmth. Actually embracing it, encircling it in warmth, in compassion. Uh, What happens if I bring, for instance, an appreciation of self into the mix? Actually into that moment, while I'm with the emotion, I bring in uh, a reflection or, or holding a sense of appreciation of myself. Another option. What about something like the quality of determination? We talked about energizing the attention and just kind of really staring this thing down. Could be an emotion, could be a mind state. One is simply, I'm sitting here determined to see the end of this. Also an option. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost the opposite, in a way, of this surrounding in warmth. There's flexibility, flexibility. To bring in spaciousness, to bring in curiosities, and many options. What happens if I explore the option of feeling more into my relationship with what is going on? Is there aversion there towards the emotion? Is there grasping, trying to keep hold of the emotion? And actually being more interested in the relationship. Is it possible to relax that aversion? This is a skill, this is a practice that we can develop, certainly develop over time. Would it be to be with something but focusing more on relaxing the aversion or relaxing the grasping? Now sometimes some of these options, as we said going back to the other talks, sometimes some of these options uh, are actually in the field already. They're in the field of my experience. And I just need to widen a little bit and notice that they're there. So someone was saying there was fear around. Actually, the fear wasn't even the start. They traced it down through some questioning, etc. And the fear. And then broadening a little bit the awareness. Notice that uh, alongside even that fear in the body, there was the presence of calm and peace, unexpectedly, uh, in a way around the fear. And that that, uh, could then be used as a resource, as we said, going back to the other talks. Uh, a vantage point, this calmness, this peace, then becomes a vantage point to look at the more difficult, uh, turbulent energy of fear. And having that vantage point of calm and peace actually then softened, softened the experience and actually <laughs> softened the fear. But as I say, we could, we might not find that quality uh, or that flexible option in the experience at the moment, we need to actually instigate it, create it a little bit, build it a little bit, no problem. So with practice, going back to one I just mentioned earlier, with practice, this being able to put love around, to embrace, to hold a difficult emotion, uh, that becomes a really viable option. We get skilled at doing that. We get uh, able to do that, to sort of pull that out and enable that. It may be that uh, we can play with the view, the way of seeing. Someone else was saying something difficult going on and uh, they just decided to see it as 
perfect. This thing that was difficult, I will just see it as perfect. It's just right. It's just perfect. So we're playing with the view. We think that's impossible. It's not perfect. It's horrible. But actually there's a lot more flexibility and malleability in the way we look at things than we might imagine. And everything depends on the way we look at things. Everything depends on the way we look at things. So it's almost like playing a game. What if I just decide to see this experience that normally I would think is terrible as just decide to see it as perfect. It's just, just right. It's just perfect. I might also bring in past insights. <clears throat> so, actually it was the same person was saying they'd had an experience or a period of time in their practice before when they were exploring their relationship with thought and the thinking mind and actually really beginning to realize I don't have to believe my thoughts. I don't have to believe the thoughts that are there. This was quite a big thing. I don't have to believe. Now, a week later, two weeks later, I can pluck out that old insight and plug it in again and just remember that I don't have to believe my thoughts and encourage a certain view that I've already kind of established a little bit through old practice. So I'm using old insights, resurrecting old insights. And there are many, many, many of these. When we have an insight, we want to use it. We want to... uh, make it part of our life. It can't just be something that just comes and then we let it go. So, go back to something I said a few minutes ago. Um, If, for instance, I learn, I develop the skill over time of really learning to relax the aversion in relationship to something difficult, really learning to develop my ability to relax grasping onto, onto something, I begin to notice something very curious, and I mentioned this in the Vedna talk as well, that an emotion or a phenomenon itself actually turns out to be dependent on my aversion or my grasping. And when I relax that, the thing itself begins to fade, to to disappear. Very, very curious phenomenon. The conclusion from that is that this emotion, this difficulty that I'm going through is actually built, it's constructed partly through my very relationship with it. It's a very counterintuitive understanding. I also begin to see, taking another track, that if I'm identified with this emotion, it means something about me, this is happening to me, this is mine, etc. When there's that identification, that too is a builder. It's a builder of experience. We're talking about very, very deep level insights now. So I can use that. And eventually, if I, when I really have absorbed those insights, I can look at things and I, I can say, I know you're built. I know you're constructed. I know you're fabricated. And that makes a huge difference in terms of opening our freedom. Because we've seen something, we've been convinced of something that undermines uh, the oppressive reality or seeming reality of things. So insight meditation, I think I said this in one talk, to me insight meditation is, is practicing ways of seeing, ways of relating that bring freedom. That, that's what it is, that's what we're doing. 
may not seem obvious at first. We're practicing ways of seeing and ways of relating to experience that bring freedom. Usually, unfortunately, we practice the opposite. So, partly coming out of this notion that we begin to get the sense how things are kind of constructed uh, through ignorance, through grasping, through aversion. The Buddha says they're fabricated. Sankata, they're fabricated. And we, another way of saying that, what comes out of that, they're actually empty. They don't exist independently of my mind. Phenomena do not exist independently of my mind. Now I can see uh, emotions are like that. The object or thing or situation that I might be upset about or clinging to or excited about is also like that. It's also empty. And also the self is empty. All of it is empty. When we see that things are empty, this is not a talk about emptiness actually, I'm moving quite quickly through all this. It's definitely not a talk about emptiness. When we see that things are empty, through that view, everything is empty, and that brings an equality to everything. Everything's equal because everything is empty. It's okay if it's there. It's okay if it's not there. Everything has the equality of emptiness. Something very, very profound and beautiful in that. <clears throat> so I came across this song from Miller Rapo, who was a very uh, wonderful and uh, beloved Tibetan yogi, I think in the 11th, uh, 12th, 11th and 12th centuries, perhaps. In a solitary place like this, I, the yogi Milarepa, am feeling clear light well, meditating on emptiness of mind. When I get a lot of stuff coming up, I feel extremely well. When the highs run into lows, feels even better still. When confusion gets complicated, I feel extremely well. Fearsome visions getting worse and worse feels even better still. When the bullies, with the bullies getting worse and worse, I feel extremely well. The suffering being bliss feels so good that feeling bad feels good. <laughs> I just want, this is not a talk about emptiness, but I wanted to give you a sense of, the, it's the most powerful thing, hands down, the most powerful thing is Understanding emptiness, getting that view in the heart, in the eyes, and then being able to look at experience. Now, you, you may, I don't know what you felt hearing Malarepa there, but maybe there's a sense of possibility there. That actually, sometimes in the most difficult things, there's a whole other way of seeing it, a whole other way of seeing it that takes the problem out of it. A different view is possible. Even if, and I'm not really explaining fully what I mean by emptiness today, and I don't really understand but a different sense of things is possible. And I've talked a lot elsewhere about emptiness, so I'm not going to go into it. Because what I want to go into is something completely different. <laughs> Let's take this idea of flexibility. Okay, so that's the eight. And remember, they're not separate. They're not separate, but they're just slightly different angles than we might usually offer. <clears throat> Let's take this principle of flexibility of view 
flexibility is absolutely key, and then kind of expand it uh, to really look at the big picture of what we are doing here, what we are doing in our life, what we are doing in our practice, what, what the path is. Now let's start, big picture view. The Dharma, the Buddha comes along and he says, there is dukkha, there is suffering, dissatisfaction, discontent, etc. There is dukkha, we have that in life, and there is freedom from it. He says, why is there dukkha and how is it possible to be freedom? So this is Four Noble Truths now. Why is there dukkha and how is it possible to be free? So the shorthand answer for why is there dukkha, he says there's dukkha because there's craving. It's craving that gives rise to dukkha, but that's only the shorthand answer. When he expands on that, he says, why is there craving? Well, there's craving because there's delusion. So the fundamental root of dukkha, of suffering, discontent, dis-ease, dissatisfaction, etc. The fundamental root is delusion. What does delusion mean? Delusion means this taking to be real everything that we uh, habitually take to be real. This self, these other selves, these objects these emotions, these inner experiences, these outer experiences, these walls, this space, this time, this awareness, all of that, the Buddha is saying, it seems so real, and it's not real in the way that it seems to be. And delusion is not knowing that, not understanding that in the heart, deeply. We say not seeing, not knowing, uh, understanding in our being the emptiness of things. That's delusion, and that is the root cause of dukkha. So, how, fourth noble truth, again, there's a shorthand version, but, but basically, how do, we, how do we overcome dukkha? There's a path that leads to that complete understanding of piercing this seeming reality of things. That's, to me, that's the Dharma in a nutshell. It's a curious feature of the insight meditation tradition that we don't say that up front, and that has benefits and definite pitfalls. Other Buddhist traditions just say it up front, this is where we're going. Side side issue. But. So it turns out, as someone was saying the other day, that seeing emptiness is the kind of trump card. It's the trump card. There's nothing that will beat it. There you go, emptiness. <laughs> um, it's by far, you know, by... Uh, that by a long shot, it's the most powerful tool in the toolbox. No, no question about it. But, and it's actually very rare for someone to have absorbed it deeply and filled out the depth and, and the comprehensiveness of, that, of what that means. It's actually, unfortunately, sadly, quite rare for someone even to be, uh, to, you know, to pursue it uh, that much. And there are different reasons for that. I'm not going to go into that. But we don't actually need all that all the time. So... Uh, if we a little little less complete, a little less deep, this self, there's nothing that I can find, there's nothing that I can point to that is this self or belongs to this self. Existentially, this self is empty. So I am not my body, I am not my feelings, I am not my emotions, I am not my perceptions, I am not my thoughts and my mind states and my movements of mind, I am not even awareness. At the most uh, fundamental level, there's nothing I can point to as me or mine. It's anatta, and there's a lot of freedom that comes out of that. 
It's not quite the total emptiness thing yet. Um, there's a lot of freedom. But again, we could. We, sometimes we don't even need all that much. Sometimes, and especially more uh, in the earlier years of practice, not for everyone because it's not linear how it unfolds, but <coughs> it might be that we see, well, just this personality that I take myself to be. I am like this. I am this kind of person. I am a grumpy old da-da-da. I am a angry. I am this. I am that. And we have these tight self-definitions of the personality. Actually, practice comes in and begin to see it's not actually true. Begin to see it's not true all the time. That's not actually the whole reality. So we say the person, personality level is also empty. It's also anatta. It's not self. <clears throat> and sometimes even a self-view is completely right and completely appropriate. Completely. I want to give you metta. I am developing this or that quality. I need this or that in my life. You and I, you and I have a difficulty, uh, an argument or whatever. We need to talk about it as two selves. So what you get is a spectrum of views, all of which can be very helpful and actually used wrongly, all of which can be unhelpful. Flexibility of you, flexibility of you. So, meeting a lot of people and talking with a lot of people and hearing, etc. In our, what do I say? In the in the West, in our kind of uh, subculture, even within the West, what it seems, a lot of suffering. I don't know even know if it's most suffering, but a lot of suffering is actually with respect to the personality. It's actually with respect to the personality and the personality level. When, if we say, given that the requisites, meaning food and and warmth and shelter and clothing, all that is there, given relatively okay health, and given that death is not kind of barking in in our face, that a lot of the suffering uh, that one encounters when all that's okay, is actually in relationship to the personality. By which I mean, how am I feeling about myself? How am I seeing and relating to my personality, these different aspects of my being, what I take myself to be? My sense of my journey through life. What's right for me now? Directions, choices, decisions. What do I want to express? I want to express as I move through life. That and more, I mean, the the personality level. And a lot of the suffering, certainly that I see as I talk with people, not saying all of it by any means, um, but a lot of it is actually at that level. Now, if the inner critic is strong, if it's very strong, it's often the case that it's personality identity uh, has become very negative. The view of our own personality when the inner critic is strong is negative. Don't like this about myself. Defining myself too tightly and too negatively. And very, very helpful in those cases to find ways of exposing the untruth of those views. The untruth. And seeing these negative self-definitions are not true. They are not certainly the complete truth. You puncture that. 
and loosening the tightness of the self-definition. Box ourselves in with these definitions. So again, I've gone into all of this in many times in different talks. I'm not going to dwell too much on that. But also, meditatively, and sometimes you know the meditation goes quite deep, perhaps, and we begin to see the personality go quiet. All this that we take ourselves to be at the personality level, and the quietening of thinking, and sometimes the quietening of the emotional life, the more spaciousness, more peace, more equanimity, and the personality goes quiet. And who am I then? Who am I in the kind of quietening, you could say the absence of the personality? Because the personality was what I took myself to be. When I begin to see going in and out of more deep states in meditation, the personality comes and goes. And I begin to see beyond the personality. And I begin to see I am not my personality. I am not the personality. And that is hugely important and hugely freeing, massive. But that's not what I want to talk about. <laughs> so typically in the insight meditation tradition, we, we kind of have an attitude of letting go of the personality because of what I've just said. Let go of the personality. It's actually not so important, the personality. It's not really where it's at. In extreme kind of uh, strands of the insight meditation tradition, you even get a model, sometimes spoken, usually more unspoken, kind of presented, um, that actually what we're aiming to to try and do is erase the personality. Actually somehow uh, wipe it out And liberation looks like everyone kind of looking uh, devoid of personality, that somehow that's the problem, and if you can kind of suck that out and put it in the garbage somewhere, uh, that that's what liberation uh, awakening looks like. Is that the aim? Is that an aim that you feel comfortable with? You may or may not conceive uh, of the path like that or what we're doing like that. You may not even think about liberation. Uh, But even if you don't think about, if the person doesn't think about liberation, there's still a relationship with the concept of liberation. You cannot get away from it. And and assumptions, etc. are still operating there. So you may not conceive that way. But but in the Buddhist tradition, crept in somewhat... Uh, there is either explicitly or implicitly that kind of message. And so it's in there and it's kind of informing the the teaching in a way and the practice, the path, or how we see it, sometimes just by absence of talking about personality. So I have a question. If I only let go of the personality, if I only see the emptiness of the personality, this is the question, is it possible that I am perhaps blocking a fulfillment of my being, fulfillment in my life that might happen through, through the personality level, and that that fulfillment might be as important, as important, equally important in its way, 
as seeing the emptiness of the personality. It's a question. It's a question. And just to say, the assumptions we have about big picture stuff like that is a big picture question. It's a big picture question. But the assumptions that I carry about that, that we all carry about that, they are there. They will. They, you, we cannot pretend that they're not there. We might not be aware of what they are, but they're there. And those assumptions regarding the big picture influence uh, the day-to-day and moment-to-moment attitudes and decisions of my life and my practice. So, I'm kind of saying it out loud now, it's really something, this this is something maybe one wants to ponder. Can, another question, with that question, could there be such a thing as a self-view, a kind of self-view, a kind of identifying even with the personality that might be not just kind of okay conventionally and necessarily, you know, necessary from time to time, yeah, I'm here and you're there and we need to, not just kind of okay at times, but actually deeply helpful, deeply growthful and deeply liberating. So in the other talks, the last two talks, there were lots of examples, and now I'm actually talking about bigger concepts, and I know talking abstractly is sometimes hard for, for, for people, but um, just to give a little bit of example. So I gave that example of, uh, when I was using the idea of working with imagery and saying for myself, uh, seeing right now a certain thing going on, a certain strand going on for me that was actually really important, really, really helpful to see myself, and those are the operative words, to see myself as fully free to inquire, and having a full freedom of inquiry. Not seeing myself, that is a helpful personality view. It's different. could have chosen an emptiness view, but it's different. Actually involving seeing myself a certain way. But what's for now? You know, right now, this is a certain way of seeing myself. It's very helpful. What's a person's relationship with their own journey of insight and journey of exploration? How do I see myself as this process of, of meditation and, and insight unfolds? How do I feel myself? And some, sometimes uh, we dismiss even the possibility that I could get any insight or get anywhere or move towards something called liberation or that it will ever amount to anything. And that's actually a personality view operating there. And with that can be despair. If I'm constantly dismissing my own insights, etc., it will lead to despair. So... How I'm seeing myself, how I'm feeling myself. What about sexuality and the sexual expression? Our expression, uh, the way we express sexuality. And, And this is whether we are celibate or not celibate. It's still something we feel for ourselves. We feel our sexuality. We have a relationship with our sexuality and we express it, whether we're active sexually or not, we're expressing it in different ways. That's 
in a way, is part of the personality journey. It's part of the personality picture. In a way, it's a pretty fundamental aspect of who we are. The Buddha says precious little about it. And what he does is not very <laughs> encouraging. Or something like artistic creativity. I, mean, I was talking just the other day with someone about that. For some people, that's a really important movement at the personality level. It's a very important expression of something. And again, the Buddha says nothing, and what he does say is quite scathing. So what would it be? What would that be? Going back to this question, is it possible that there is a kind of self-view, a kind of identifying with the personality that's more than just okay, that's actually deeply helpful, what would that be? What would that view, that approach be? What would it involve, generally speaking, not so, so much specifically, to include the personality level much, much more? <clears throat> and I don't mean, I don't just mean in terms of healing psychologically, uh, for instance, um, in, in most, most therapies just to kind of re, uh, reclaim or re, um, yeah, reclaim an aspect that might have been trodden on or cramped or dis, you know, distorted early in our life. I don't just mean that. I mean going beyond even that. That there's something that can manifest and unfold through the personality in an ongoing, lifelong way, an ongoing lifelong discovery and unfoldment that might then involve actually if it's ongoing and lifelong much more than just ordinarily what we might call the personality, whole dimensions of experience, dimensions of feeling ourselves and experiencing ourselves, our being but if, if that is the case then just as we talked about a kind of dynamism, a healthy dynamism that might be there with our emotions, like a plant wanting to move towards the light, a larger dynamism might be there with our whole kind of personality and the aspects and the unfolding of our personality. And then the question is, if that's a possibility, how does that get locked down, that dynamism, and how might we unlock it? So I want to go into this. How do we unlock it? How how do we lock it first and how do we unlock it? Well, often, and this, some of this, much of this, in fact, it it was woven in, these questions, to me, they were woven in to a lot of what I was saying in the last two talks and that's why I'm talking about it now. So they're kind of teasing these uh, a lot of this out of that. Because oftentimes, unconsciously, we shut out aspects of our being for different reasons. And we touched on that in the last two talks. Perhaps because it doesn't fit an image of who I think I am or who I think I should be. And I gave that example of this acquaintance of mine uh, um, who was in meditation with the, the glaring, angry face that then said, uh, Do you remember that? Yeah, uh, something's being sh- it doesn't fit the image I shut it out I'm shutting out aspects of myself or there are uh, unconsciously operating limiting beliefs 
conditionings from the past, from childhood, from education, from society, karma, whatever you want to call it, conditionings, fear, all this causes us to unconsciously shut out aspects of the being. Or we just, as I was saying in the last talks, we just don't assume that they're relevant. It just doesn't seem relevant. But they may well be. They may well be deep resources, deep strengths possibly, deep gifts, gifts of whatever you want to call it, to ourselves, of ourselves to ourselves, parts of us, necessary aspects to be integrated. And that to the degree that we can do that, it allows a fullness of the being, fullness, an aliveness to this unfoldment. It allows something to unfold at that level that I'm calling the personality level, through that dimension that I'm calling the personality and there, there can be, with that, as we begin to acknowledge, integrate, open, review, meaning look at all that stuff differently, find the gift in it, the gifts in it, a sense of uh, this, the deep dynamism of, of the, the personal journey. They're, they, the very difficulties become kind of threads to follow, and as we follow, those threads turn golden seems like yucky, and as I, as I follow it, 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 it turns golden and it becomes a gift. So that's one possibility. Another possibility, the way we lock down this, this uh, potential, this unfoldment, this, this dynamism, is that we don't believe that there's much more to discover about ourselves on the personality level, the self level, especially when you get to a certain age. You think, well, I know myself now. All right, there's not much more there. I know my personality, I know myself. We tend to conceive of the self as a kind of static thing. Not imagining, we don't imagine that maybe there's something inexhaustible here. In, in what we're calling our personality at that level, there's something inexhaustible, unique treasures there that will very probably surprise us well into the autumn of our lives. Aspects that we perhaps haven't uncovered or allowed to unfold. Maybe this self thing is not, or the personality, maybe it's not a final destination. It's not that we're kind of clearing away something to arrive at an authentic real self. Maybe it's more that it's actually in the ongoingness, in the ongoing unfolding, in the discovery, in the revelation, that that movement is actually more accurately what the self is. It's not a static thing, I am like this, I am like that. It's something in, in a thread that we follow. And just like when we were talking about with the emotions and the big premise that I started with in regard to the emotional life, just like that dynamism in relation to the emotions, when that unfoldment at the personality level is allowed and energized, or rather I should say this, we allow it more or less at times. We block it, we allow it partially. That's moving all the time. But dependent on how much we can allow it and allow it to be energized. Uh, you know, that depends on fear, beliefs, 
they will fear and beliefs will inhibit tie up uh, distort and stagnate that unfoldment but if i can allow it unlock its power there's an immense power here that it's probably quite rare for a human being to really be fully in touch with but if i can allow and unlock that power, really know it and really feel it, feel that current. Uh, Something very, very beautiful there, very powerful, very empowering, alive, thrilling even, thrilling. Uh, The journey of discovery of ourselves in a way, of the very personality becomes thrilling. And it actually involves, and this is where it's very curious, it actually involves a kind of identification with the self and the personality. Uh, It also involves less clinging, because I have to see it as an open, ongoing current of unfoldment and not a fixed, I am this or I am that. But I'll, I'll come back to that. A third option of the way we lock it, we lock this unfoldment, is that, and this goes back to something I said earlier, we reduce the personality to an irrelevance spiritually. It's empty, like I said. It's empty. And so the danger in Dharma circles is that if it's empty, it's then we reach a kind of okayness in relationship to the personality and with the personality. It's kind of okay. I've seen two enough degree that it's empty and so it's kind of okay and I can let it just be kind of okay or I can actually kind of just ignore it for the rest of my life it's just a personality and that happens that happens uh, it's one of the every path has pitfalls one of the pitfalls of this is that might happen it doesn't seem to fit so well in with the Buddha Dharma Sometimes in the Dharma they say, yeah, the self, but the self is, we are talking about, the self is a process, there is something unfolding. They talk about the five aggregates of form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, thoughts and moods and mind states and movements of the mind, intentions, and consciousness. And that these aggregates kind of move in a process, moment to moment, but other than that, there's nothing there. And that is the self. It's this movement of these kind of moments of these little building blocks. But there's nothing other than that. If I say that's what the self is, how does that feel to you? Does it make you happy? (laughs) It might make some people happy. Some people are shaking their heads, definitely not. To me, it's a very reductionist view. It's also not what the Buddha said, as far as I can my understanding it's definitely not what the Buddha said absolutely not it's also reductionistic what it is is a helpful way of looking going back to what we said so you can plug that in shift the car into that gear and look at your experience moment to moment in that way and that is very helpful but it's not a statement of reality it's only a way of looking which can be very helpful at times. It's only a way of looking. But that way of looking, that sense of a process, doesn't give a sense of what I'm trying to uh, talk about today, which is of something much richer, not reductionistic, not kind of almost, almost, and not almost, actually more than almost, with the flavor of nihilism in it. 
something very rich, a very rich thread unfolding, a journey of unfoldment, unique to me, unique to me. It's not mechanistic process like the, the aggregates unfolding. It's not a mechanistic, it's actually a deeply, deeply creative process, creative something unfolding. So again, we're talking about an unfolding. It's not just kind of being okay with the personality and how it is. It's not just healing the personality from childhood in terms of psychotherapeutically, etc. I'm talking about something even much bigger, more more powerful. That's something, as I said, lifelong, thrilling journey of discovery is possible. A danger of that is that it can be a bit self-obsessed, me and my wonderful personality unfoldment. Uh, that is a danger there, and one becomes a bit self-obsessed. But everything has its danger. <clears throat> so what if we say, what locks it? Those are some options and there are others. What if we turn that around and say, what unlocks this? What might unlock this unfoldment? What might unlock for us this, this, um, this dynamism? Of, at the personality, not just emotionally, but of the whole being, so that uh, we really feel there's there's something electric moving through the life in terms of the journey of discovery at that level. Okay, so I've got another list. Um, it's got six things on it, uh, but I'm going to be very very brief because each could be a talk. So I'm just moving through this very quickly. This points to uh, something bigger. This is kind of an overview of something. But the first one we've actually thankfully already been through because it's uh, all the eight principles and approaches I talked about in the last two talks. Those kinds of of ways of relating to my emotional experience. But here I want to expand it not just to emotional experience but to all experience. So almost think everything that I said in relationship to emotions can actually apply to any experience that I find myself in or going through. And if I can bring some of that flexibility, some of those careful ways of working, again, it will tend to unlock something in the unfoldment, in the manifestation of what, what occurs. Done that. But just to pick out one in particular uh, of those eight for right now, um, and that is the relationship to questioning. Uh, it seems especially important, especially important, because sometimes we don't ask, we don't ask the questions that are really going to be helpful that are really going to unlock something or shift something. I touched on this in the last talk. We, we're with our experience. We can be with it. We're witnessing it. We can tolerate it. We can be with it. We can describe it very well, perhaps even to someone else or to ourselves. But somehow that questioning isn't there. There's not something that's really... Uh, we're not asking in ways that unlock. Or sometimes the we're not asking kind of boldly enough. Our, our questioning, and this, and this could be a whole talk, 
but sometimes we're a little bit timid in the questions that we ask of our experience, of ourselves, of our existence. It, it, for some reasons, lots of reasons I'm not going to go into now, we, haven't, we don't have the confidence to be bold in our questioning. Or we only tend to ask kind of small questions, small questions. And not, for instance, really big picture questions or whatever. Or sometimes the whole relationship for someone to questioning, the questioning seems to be intellectual. The experience seems very uh, what's primary. And the questioning seems it, it can only kind of function in an intellectual way. Is there a way of making our self-questioning process something very alive and not just intellectual? That's the second one. I just pull that out from the list of eight in particular. The third one, again, it could be at least a whole talk, and I'm just going to say it very, very briefly. As human beings, we have needs for comfort. We need to become, it's a little cold in here today. Uh, we need to be warm, for instance. We need to be comfortable. Uh, we need a certain amount of physical comfort in our life. Uh, we need also a certain amount of pleasure at the sensual level. You know, that's it, very hard to have no sensual pleasure in one's life. Um, I don't know if we have a need, but we have something in us that desires things to be convenient. We have a need, a needs actually, for security. You know, security comes in lots of different people, go very different range of, of kind of targets for where we try to get security from. Money, house, relationship, uh, lots of things. Uh, social esteem, power over others. Um, some, all, some, some of those ways we get security are all really important and they're necessary. We, we, we need a certain amount of security. We also need a certain amount of social contact, of affection, of um, support from others. All of that, all of that is a necessary part of our life. But, very easily for a human being, without a person maybe even realizing it, they can become the most powerful drives the most powerful drives in the life in the life and one doesn't even realize it that the drives the needs for uh, comfort convenience sense pleasure different kinds of security affection etc without realizing it they have usurped other drives perhaps we could say deeper more, more necessary, and there in the, in the driving scene, we don't even realize it. <clears throat> it's actually extremely rare for uh, our our drives and motivations not to be mixed in life. So it takes a lot of honesty, a lot of openness, and and willingness to investigate when are these kind of drives uh, in when when are they powerful. And when is something else able to kind of be more powerful? It's okay that they're there. We do need all this stuff. But are they in the driving seat? And that makes a huge difference to 
every aspect of our path. Every aspect. Because to the degree that they're in the driving seat, our unfoldment of our path on the personality level, on any level, any level, will be uh, limited. So their needs, they're necessary, they're part of us. We need to acknowledge them, we need to take care of ourselves there, but I actually really need to check that they're not the most powerful thing. <laughs> and if they are, then I have, to, I have to go into that a little bit. That's a whole other talk. Okay, there's three more, and again, these could each be talks, <clears throat> and they're, in a way, slightly unusual. So remember, these, these are, we're asking the bigger question, what is it that unlocks this, uh, this unfoldment, the full potential of this unfoldment, this, this dynamism? So this fourth one is desire, the movement of desire in the being. So, and again, for a Dharma practitioner, that might sound like that doesn't quite fit. The movement of desire in the being actually holds gold in it. It holds liquid gold in it. But not, not when it's fixed or too fixed on this or that object and getting this or that thing. But if, and this, this is a practice, this is something that we can discover, the careful, subtle working with this, one will actually notice something very, very interesting. That if I can, and I'm being very brief here, but if one can allow the current of desire, not chasing this or that, the, the, the current of the desire, and allow that and feel that and let that fill the being and what, what it's moving towards without fixing on something to get in the future or something then that current actually actually allows an accessing to this greater current, uh, a greater, more powerful current of unfolding. Something in the very movement of desire is part of this movement of a plant moving towards the sun. It's the opposite of what we tend to think in the Dharma. Something hidden, I don't know if it's all desires, I'm not sure. Something hidden in desire. If I can find my relationship with desires, find my way in, it's quite subtle, but if I can find my way in, it can uh, access that larger, more powerful unfoldment, that more powerful current and, and the flowering of the being. And sometimes, if I find my, the right relationship with desire, as they're happening in the moment, I trace it down and I allow it to fill, it actually can seem like the desires are bigger than I am. They're bigger than me, in a way. Very curious. The movement of desire feels like it's bigger than I am. Deeper than me, and deeper and wider than the box and the definition that I usually have of myself. <clears throat> but we block, again, we block this by fears, by narrow beliefs, by self-definitions, and particularly with desire, by the desire landing on something and then getting locked there and not uh, 
being able to give us its, its gift. That could be at least one whole other talk, right? I just want to mention that. So, in a way, that leads on to the fifth one. <clears throat> How do we unlock this? I need to actually trust that there's something, like if you garden at all, which I don't, but uh, if you garden, you put a seed in the soil, and then there's trust. There's trust. Uh, you do what you can, but when trusts what it is in plants that moves towards the sun. So part of unlocking this unfoldment is actually trusting that there's something there that's deeply uh, beautiful and healthy, that, that there's something worth trusting. Trusting this movement of being, these movements of being, trusting the movements of desire even, trusting the dynamism in the being. So there's this word, kilesa, many of you probably know it. It means something like defilement or impurity. And the Buddha says there's three kilesas and they're, they're root and they're deep in us. Greed, aversion and delusion. But sometimes the same with desire, the manifestation of desire, the manifestation of greed, the manifestation of aversion, um, this or that, hatred even, sometimes, I'm not sure what the percentage is here, might be quite a lot larger than one might think, sometimes that's actually the distorted expression of this healthy movement towards the light. So I can see it as a kalesa, or I can find the relationship with it, that actually exp- is, it's, it's something beautiful is, is trying to work its way up through the cracks in the pavement. Someone says, it's, this is laziness, it's a kilesa. Maybe, maybe it's how I'm relating to it. There's something actually that the laziness has something beautiful there. Or blame. I notice all this blame of my parents or hatred or this or that. Whatever. Maybe there's something beautiful coming through that. So this has a lot to do about the assumptions about who and how we are deep down in the being, what we are deep down. <clears throat> okay, last one. If I go back to something I said earlier in the talk. Insight meditation, to me, is learning to see things differently. Learning to see things in a way that brings freedom. To relate to things in a way that brings freedom. We could say, freedom comes from seeing this or that differently. Whatever this or that is. Freedom comes from seeing this or that in a way that brings freedom into that relationship. So what about the self? What about the self? I practice involves seeing myself differently. Now traditionally we have this practice of anatta, anatta. Atta means self, an is a negative. So seeing not self, seeing no self, seeing the emptiness of self. And again, could talked about this a lot before in other talks, but just to say that's a way of practicing where we're regarding all phenomena and all experience as not-self, not me, not mine. 
And it's something we really develop as a practice. Just sitting, walking, and everything, everything that comes up, everything that I take myself to be, not me, not mine, not me, not mine. Beautiful, powerful, deep, deep way of practicing. It can really develop. But for what we're talking about today, maybe is there a different way of seeing myself that actually involves a kind of claiming claiming aspects of myself as myself. It actually involves a kind of identifying. Lightly and a kind of, I use that word. So actually claiming the qualities, the dimensions that emerge as me, in a way, finding a way, finding a way to do that. Back to the question, I said, is there a way of doing that? And again, rather than this or that being me, it's actually the thread of unfoldment that more accurately is better to regard as me if I'm going to identify with anything. Something, this thread is unique to me. It's unique to me. I don't know if it's hard, if there's a lot of inner critic around, it might be hard to hear this, I'm not sure. Because then if the personality, if we feel a lot of judgment of the personality, then the whole idea that the personality may be, uh, may unfold such riches or have such treasure in it might be quite difficult to hear. I don't know. So yes, reclaiming playfulness, perhaps, reclaiming vulnerability, perhaps. Maybe these qualities were there in our childhood, or early, maybe even earlier than we remember, the vulnerability, the softness, the openness, the strength of being, joy, reclaiming all of that. But as I said before, I'm not just talking about reclaiming and regaining what was there. Actually, that all of these uh, kind of are open-ended Kind of avenues or threads or avenues of manifestation. What's the end to that? What's the end to this unfoldment? Is there an end to it? But they, all these aspects, are kind of natural manifestations when they're not when we're not blocking them. And perhaps it's possible to discover dimensions of the being through this through this level uh, that we wouldn't have imagined. This particular unique expression of these qualities is mine. You say mine in inverted commas. <clears throat> that thread of unfoldment. But somehow for that is not just not me, not mine, not me, not mine. Somehow I actually need to find a way of engaging and somehow kind of claiming, somehow kind of following that thread, somehow kind of desiring something. Okay, <clears throat> so I don't know where that lands. It probably lands in quite different places with a lot of people in the room. But this is, like always, no point talking about stuff if it's not actually available to us. And this is available. And just as much as the incredible, incredible uh, 
radical power of, of say, seeing emptiness is available to us. It really is available to us. So also this other, I don't know what you call it, uh, dimension or whatever, is, is available to us. And this, what I'm calling this personality level, this fullness of, of being or personality, you know, that too is also just a way of looking. It's just a way of looking. But because something's just a way of looking doesn't make it worthless. It's very helpful, can be very helpful, and maybe helpful in different ways, in different areas, than sometimes the emptiness piece is. Maybe they're complementary. I don't know. Maybe they're complementary. It feels that way to me. They're complementary. So we have the possibility of seeing this kind of very radical, very radical re-understanding of existence that comes through emptiness and the totality of that, the depth of that. And we, and the seeing everything as not me, not mine, not, I can't find the self. And we have the possibility of this personality level journey, the dimensions of a personal journey. Both are possible. Sometimes people emphasize just the personal and they just kind of give a lip service to the emptiness piece. Oh yeah, 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 and everything's empty. There's quite something to really, uh, to really take on board both and the fullness of what both might mean. But both are kind of there for us. So, I wanted to say something. Some of you are working on emptiness, and some of you are working on concentration. Um, and some of you are working, in fact, everyone who's working is working very, very beautifully. <laughs> At least, certainly the people I've, I've met, and it seems. Um, please do not abandon <laughs> the, the emptiness thing because of what I was saying today. It's just something to put in your pipe and, and kind of ponder for later. Um, it was near the end of the retreat. It felt like it was coming out of a lot of the stuff I was talking about anyway. But if you are exploring emptiness particularly, please continue to do that because you are working very beautifully and don't, uh, don't get um, derailed by what I've said today. And, and in fact, for everyone, I'm just putting it out there. I'm aware it might land in different places. You can kind of do or not do whatever you want about it whenever you want. In a way, I'm sharing with you a questioning. That's all. Okay, should we have some quiet time together? <clears throat>